Hi, I'm Katerina Fake of YesVC, and this is Ingenious. On this podcast, we're talking about courage, ingenuity, and how it can get us out of some of the dark corners we've gotten ourselves into. My guest today is fearless and ingenious, ready to take on hard-to-discuss topics in front of millions on TV, all the while being funny and warm. Hello. Oh, there you are. Welcome to to my historical society. (laughs) W. Kamau Bell. This is great. Kamau greets me with a hug in a setting that he says feels like home. The Chinese Historical Society in San Francisco, where they have an exhibition paying tribute to one of his heroes, Bruce Lee, the revered martial artist, actor, and filmmaker. I'm also, I call myself America's number one Bruce Lee expert non-Asian division, yes. is what I say. My yeah, my, oh wow. That's how I want to lay my house out if, my, if Melissa will ever let me. Kamau's <laughs> wife might not let him decorate his house like this exhibit with Bruce Lee movie costumes, his handwritten essays on philosophy, and photos with his famous students like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. But Kamau says his bedroom at age 10 was its own Bruce Lee museum wall-to-wall with Bruce Lee posters. I'm sort of like piecing together my heroes. So it's Eddie Murphy, it's Bruce Lee, it's Spider-Man, you know what I mean? Like it's just, and at the time I would say, because this is pre-internet, he's also like, he is not as popular then as he is now. I felt like I was like maybe the only Bruce Lee fan in the world because the world was not talking about Bruce Lee. Yeah. Kamau Bell is now a comedian and a political provocateur. He's traveled the US for his Emmy-winning series on CNN, The United Shades of America. He's best known for directing the gutsy, Peabody-winning documentary, We Need to Talk About Cosby. And he's just finished a new doc inspired by his own kids about being mixed race called A Thousand Percent Me. Kamau says he's tried to live his life in the spirit of this one Bruce Lee quote. This is my favorite Bruce Lee quote by a mile. It's like one of my operating principles of my life. The part of this quote that is my, it's my best, that my favorite part is, absorb what is useful, discard what is not, and add what is uniquely your own. Which is like how you end up, for me, how I end up being a stand-up comedian who also directs documentaries. Yeah. Like, that's the, like that's the thing that makes me be like, I don't have to do it the way other people did it. Yeah. And I can sort of like borrow the things that I like and discard what I don't. Lots of people are celebrating Bruce Lee this year. It's the 50th anniversary of his martial arts epic, Enter the Dragon released a month after his death at the young age of 32. This exhibition and my conversation with Kamau go well beyond Bruce Lee's movies and television shows. His impact transcended race, geography, and culture. The title of this exhibit is We Are Bruce Lee, Under the Sky, One Family, and is taken from Bruce Lee's comments in this 1971 television interview. You know what I want to think of myself? As a human being. Because, I mean, I don't want to sound like, you know, as Confucius, eh? but under the sky, under the heaven, man, there is but one family. It just so happened, man, that people are different. Kamau says it's Bruce Lee, the philosopher, and not the actor, director, martial arts icon, who endures. For my conversation with Kamau, we are sitting in the middle of this exhibition, surrounded by Bruce Lee quotes painted on the walls, his barbells and weight bench, movie posters, and magazine covers. But first, we go back in time to some of Kamau's own story. Wait, so where did we meet? We met at the, the JCC in San Francisco in like one of the and one of the small rooms because there's a lot of amazing rooms in there. We were not in. An we were not in room. the big one. We were not in the big room. No. We were not big room people yet. Uh, at least I wasn't. I'll speak for myself. This is 20 years ago. Yeah, I think I was just a guy who was trying to be a stand-up comedian. I had just co-founded Flickr, 
and Kamau was doing comedy. We met on a panel. Then, earlier this year, we saw each other again, and both of our lives had really changed. I was on the board of Sundance, and Kamau was on the documentary Jury. His series for Showtime, We Need to Talk About Cosby, had become a huge hit. The series traced how Cosby went from being America's dad to being convicted and imprisoned for the sexual assault, drugging, and rape of over 60 women who had come forward with their stories. So I wanted to talk a little bit about Cosby, mm-hmm. of course, because this one is this one was a big, big thing in your career. But I did want to really focus on Bruce Lee, like kind of like as the as the kind of the, the I, overview. I enjoy the, the Bruce Lee aperitif after talking about Cosby. So like, I'm or, sure. Or whatever so like we don't have to go into. I just want to talk a no, little no, bit to, about I'm it happy to because questions. you know you're probably yeah no it's probably like I remember reading this interview with um, Tom York. Mm. when they were this one hit wonder they had this mm-hmm. one song called creep before mm-hmm. they became oh, yeah. like radiohead I, I you know this song yeah, yeah. and just him talking about having to sing that song mm-hmm. so sometimes it gets like that and i'm happy to talk about it because i knew what i was getting into and like i so i'm happy to talk about it with people who want to talk about it i'm not happy to talk about it with people who want to argue about it so right because i feel like you. it's part of my responsibility is making that it's like what are you gonna do not talk about it yeah once the opportunity was presented to me i could not make it I kept trying to figure out ways to not make it. Like, mm-hmm. this is too much for me. I'm not experienced as a director. I've gotten in way too deep. All these famous people that I thought would want to talk about it don't want to talk about it. They're smarter than me. They know more. Then COVID hit. Maybe we'll just cancel it. Maybe it'll just go away. There's a lot of Cosby docs that have existed that have just gone away because of how hard it is to tell the story. My friends would tell you that I was like hoping that somehow a meteor would hit and end all documentary production. <laughs> but we can't make documentary. Yeah. You wouldn't have to do it anymore. Yeah, but it just, it just wow. didn't happen. So yeah, so I definitely like, I was compelled beyond logic, which is I think a thing that, to bring it to Bruce Lee is a thing I think he was also compelled beyond logic to do what he did. Yeah. And one last thing on Cosby. There's been some evolution in the story too, mm-hmm. right? He yeah. got out and was supposed to tour. Well, this is the thing. I mean, and I don't, I've never talked to Bill Cosby once in my life. I've seen him on stage twice in my life before I made the doc. Mm. So while we were making it, the last day we thought we were filming, we were in Philadelphia, and he, that's the day he gets out of prison. So, and nobody knew it was coming. We talked to the survivors who follow his case very closely. Nobody knew it was coming. So he gets out of prison. We suddenly become a different film at that point. That's why I was like, maybe it'll cancel it now because he's out of prison. But his spokespeople, his spokesperson says things like Bill Cosby's going on tour. And it's like, Bill Cosby's 83 years old. Yeah. How many 83-year-old touring comedians are there? I mean, he's 80, he was 83 then. He's 86 now. There's right. not a ton of 86-year-old comedians on tour. First of all, there's zero. I'm going to say there's zero. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. So, and there's so much more to it that I learned through making it. And even uh. since the film has come out, people who have experiences in and around him have approached me and gone to tell me other stories that support what we believed already. So it is yeah. a... And for me, the, at the end of the day, that film became about, like, how do we create an industry that lessens the ability for this to happen? Because Cosby's not the only one, obviously. Oh, God, no. And there's a lot that are still unexposed. A lot that are unexposed. I mean, I know. I mean, I just offhand, like, yeah. just, like I'm not even a Hollywood person. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I, I got the stories, too, you know. For this moment, put what the Cosby crimes aside, a lot of these people are not nice people. Mm. And I think that gets to the bigger thing, like what is happening in entertainment that is encouraging people to not be nice people? 
you know, right. and I think that's the bigger why story. Why is it set up that way? Why is it, why is it possible for them to be so Why is it set up so that way? Why, do we, why have we not figured out that's not actually good for the long-term health of these performers to be, because forget, again, crimes aside, to just not be nice people. Like, yeah. not many people can pull that off for a whole career, because right. at some point it breaks And you. just, like, walk on people. Or the minute you stop selling at that level, people just scatter, and then you're just a not nice person who has who doesn't have the fame and fortune anymore. So Yeah, and you yeah. also have all that money to insulate you from all of it, and then yeah. all the people around you, you can surround yourself with all of these sycophantic, like, supporters who are going to cover up for you. Yeah, so to <laughs> me it's just, like, about the fact that, like, why don't we create an industry? And some of this is related to, like, Embedded in the union strike of SAG and SAG-AFTRA and the Writers Guild is like, be nicer. Mm. Like, just like, like take we, care of the yeah, people. Like, take yeah. care of people. And yeah. some of that is like financially, but some of that is like, let me have lunch. You know, like, let me, let me get 12 hours of, away from this job before I come back the next day. Let me have a livable wage. Like, I mean, you know, but be nicer as a, as a sort of a cover for like pay me more and treat and you know oh, yeah, and have, I want uh, I want retirement. But that's what it is. Is like since we're making all this money, can't we be better to each other? And so, mm-hmm. in the Cosby doc, I approach it from the side of like when showbiz was started, when they decided to build the Dream Factory, what they didn't go is like before we get started on making dreams, where should we put the human resources department? Mm-hmm. That was not a question that was asked. Like nobody no, was like, no, no. No. where should we put the complaint department so you can anonymously complain about your boss or your coworker? It was founded by reprobates and criminals and people who were escaping something to go west. And so it just bad people. That sort of like soft earth is what it's been built on. Uh, all right, let's not talk about the tech industry, okay? <laughs> Speaking of soft earth, <laughs> let's not go there. All right, so part of the reason I got in touch is mm-hmm. because I'm a huge fan of Thousand Percent Me. Thank you. Your recent yes. documentary. And um, part of that is because I'm also a happy, like kind of of all the peoples. Yes. I'm half Filipino and half American, yeah. I guess you would say. Um, my dad is from New England, you That's know. The, we're the original Americans, <laughs> the original, American. Oh, yeah. yeah. And um, my mother's from Manila. Mm. And so I, I grew Those up there. That's a very Filipino place. Very Filipino <laughs> and, and New England is a very white American place. And be- between these two cultures which were extremely different like yeah. a very like I have the the dad part is like very uh, New England Puritan mm-hmm. like really truly like that's oh, wow. all of the that's the heritage yeah. and then of course my my Filipino mom so when I saw that you had you had made this I really loved it and with the with the kids yes right your beautiful daughters and I just love that you also made this which is not a, a topic that a lot of people talk about I don't know mm-hmm. maybe there's been movies about this I mean there's definitely been other projects I think a lot I think the challenge is is that even if you see, like, even when we were making the project, anytime a person on Instagram identifies themselves as mixed or biracial or happy, you go to their comments, if it gets any attention, people are fighting the comments about that person's ability to self-identify. Right. It's funny how I've seen podcasts where they will say the most horrible, like, regressive, homophobic, transphobic, racist, whatever things, and if mixed race comes up, they're like, oh, we got to be careful here. Back in the Baltimore of 1960, when my parents were married, it was illegal for mixed-race couples to marry. People had to lie on their wedding certificates during the pre-Lovings era. The Lovings were the interracial couple who fought all the way to the Supreme Court to be together. And now Kamau and I are looking at a wedding photo in the exhibit of Bruce Lee and his bride, Linda Emery, who met while they were students at the University of Washington. This is him marrying Linda, mm-hmm. his wife, in 1964. Is that... So this is like... So when the loving couple got married in 67, it was still illegal in something like 20 states, somewhere around 20 states. Yeah. 
it sounds like it was legal to have an interracial marriage between a white person and a non-white person in, in uh, I think they got married in Washington. You know, but this is the thing I did not know until later, that his mom, she's identified here as Eurasian, had some sort of like European mix in her so that Bruce, to a Chinese person in China, would have been seen as like not 100% Chinese. Would not that is been. something that actually is not much discussed. Is the, yeah, no, it's, it's <laughs> is the Asian Is the yeah. Asian rejection of the, of the partially Asian, yes. actually. Yeah, yeah, and so he, as I said, he, was, he always felt like everywhere he went, he was like a stranger or an outsider. Yeah. And I think he's sort of like, and because I think that's what led him in the direction of his life, like that I'm gonna find my own people. I'm gonna create the island of misfits toys that I wanna see in the world. As much of a superstar as Bruce Lee was, there are so many details about his life that are not well known. Like that he was born here in San Francisco. Yeah, I think that your, your average person would think that Bruce Lee was born in, in Hong Kong or born in China, but he was born in San Francisco while his parents were on a tour because his, his dad was a performer mm-hmm. and he was performing in San Francisco. And thanks to the way the, the Constitution works, because he was born in this country, he had he was a dual citizen of Hong Kong and America. Right. Which is sort of a key element to why he was able to come back at 18. When it, when the streets got hot in Hong Kong, his parents were able to go, okay, you're going to use this American, <laughs> this American birth certificate so you can get out of here. And here we have, I'm standing in front of this wall, which has baby pictures of Bruce Lee, mm-hmm. his parents holding him. And then also his dad, who is a Cantonese opera star, mm-hmm. um, has him in a mask here. And gosh, he was only born in... 1940. Yeah, no, he could very easily still be alive. He would have been alive now. Yeah, he would. I think it would be. And also, think about his impact on Hollywood would be so. He would have because he had a lot of disciples in his lifetime. But there would have been kids who were born like me in '73 who would have come up under him. Who would have been who the tree of of his influence, and he would have been a guy who would have eventually would have been an actor, not a martial artist. You know. Yes. Bruce Lee died in 1973, the year Kamau was born. And Kamau says it was almost a decade before he discovered the actual Bruce Lee. Kamau grew up during Bruce Bloitation, a time when filmmakers from Hong Kong, Taiwan, and South Korea cast Bruce Lee lookalikes, starring in imitation martial arts films to exploit his popularity after his death. But wandering in a video rental store, perusing movies as a young kid, that's when Kamau became a fanatic. Video Connection. This Video is pre-blockbuster. Oh, pre-block. okay. Video Connection in Chicago, yeah. south side of Chicago. And you go to the martial arts section or the kung fu section, whatever it was called, and there's like four movies that star Bruce Lee. I was like, what are these? Yeah. I've never seen these before. Right. But this, these say Bruce Lee, and yeah. this guy looks like none of the people. Maybe I've seen pictures of Bruce Lee, because some of those movies would use images of actual Bruce Lee in the movies. Got it. I'm like, okay, I'm going to buy this. I'm going to check out, not buy. I'm going to rent Into the Dragon. And I was like, oh, this is Bruce Lee. This is way, it's like there's lots of players in the NBA who can dunk better than Michael Jordan. But when you watch Michael Jordan, you go, that's the best guy. Like, that's, it's not the same. Even though it's the same dunk, there's something this guy is doing that is different. And Bruce Lee was like that, where it was like, there is a thing that he has that when people have it, we're talking about like Michael Jordan, Jimi Hendrix, Prince, we're talking about like very specific, David mm-hmm. Bowie, mm-hmm. like you have something the rest of us don't have. Yeah. Like even other stars don't have what you have. Yeah. It's like, and he matched that with his, like with his work ethic, 
So like, you know, you could be charismatic and not have that work, but he had the work ethic so that it's just clear that everything everybody else is doing is imitating that. You're so like, I, this is the original. This is clearly the original. This and is so the archetype. I watched Into the Dragon over and over again that weekend and then went through all the other films and it was just like, and then like at that point, we're also in the martial arts magazine era. So inside Kung Fu magazine and Black Belt magazines are the two mar- monthly martial arts magazines. Okay. And Bruce is probably on the cover every other month. Like they're just constantly like the, the Bruce Lee collector's edition. Like So they're starting, you can order books in the back of the magazines. They're not, this is before Amazon. So I'm, I'm having my mom write a check <laughs> to send to these, to order, to, and Tao of Jeet Kune Do is the book that Bruce wrote that they put together and released after he died. Mm-hmm. So I'm getting his books. I'm getting all these things. And so I'm sort of assembling my Bruce Lee knowledge and starting to do martial arts as a kid so inspired like by. it's totally inspired by and like buying nunchucks from the martial arts supply store where they were still legal like i'm doing all i'm doing everything i can to be this guy right yeah how yeah. old are you i mean we're talking about like preteen into my teens definitely like, yeah I definitely so like started 10 11 12 10 11 12 well the other thing too is that i just recently watched fists of fury mm. and he's very much about defending the chinese people mm-hmm. you know it's actually a whole it's a whole movie about you know this kind of clash of clans basically mm-hmm. yeah there's a moment in fists of fury where he is avenging his teacher's death so it's all about how the chinese people have been colonized by the japanese people they have killed his teacher mm-hmm. he's the star pupil at this at this kung fu school Everybody else in the Kung Fu school is like, we have to sort of like, just be cool. We can't, we can't retaliate because they they basically we've been colonized by them. We don't want them to attack us. Mm-hmm. And Bruce Lee is like, basically gets, feels like they've disrespected his teacher and his school too much. And he's like, I can't take this. I'm going on the attack. And so it's a whole movie about, it's a revenge film. Mm-hmm. But there's a moment in the movie where he like shows up at the, Kung Fu, at the karate school alone. So it's Kung Fu versus karate, which is still a battle that exists to this day. Mm-hmm. He shows up at the karate school by himself and basically like, if anybody wants to fight, I'll fight all of you. Like, like, like I'm here to fight, who wants to fight? I'll take you on, I think there's a line, I'll take you on one at a time or all together, I don't care. And they're just like, this guy, yeah. he beats everybody up. They are all collapsed into piles around the room. And he has brought with him this sign that, that read on it, Chinese are the sick men of Asia, mm-hmm. that they gave to him at his teacher's funeral. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. He yeah. shows up with the sign, breaks the sign, force feeds the paper from the sign to this one guy's mouth and then says, we are not sick men. And as a black kid living in America, who in the post-civil rights era, but still feeling the, still very much feeling the brunt of racism, I'm like 11, like, yeah, we are not sick men. I'm not Chinese. I don't know the history of any of this, but that was to me, was this moment of like connection. I think a lot of black people connected to Bruce Lee because he was like standing up for the underdogs and in America, black people are, were and still are the underdogs. And he was doing it with his fists and his feet. We couldn't all get access to guns because that's not how the, that amendment works for us. And so he was saying, if you train yourself, you can stand up to your oppressor. And apparently when that scene aired in China, like the Chinese people like exploded in applause and stood up and clapped because it was like, they were again still feeling oppressed by the by the Japanese. Yeah. yeah. 
And also that scene from the park when he goes to the park. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, was it no, no dogs or Chinese people are allowed in here? Which yeah. is like you know those signs existed in America. Yeah. So it feels very much like it's. You know, as a black person, you have to sort of look for the allegories for racism, for or allegories for being black in America, because there weren't a lot of our stories out there. Now, at the same time, the Bruce exploitation era is happening, the black exploitation era is happening in America, yeah. which is a similar thing about black people standing up in their sort of low budget films. But yeah, as a black person, you're like you sort of like you're turning heroes black just because they feel like they have your they are aligned with you. So like you know, mm-hmm. Spider Man feels like he's black, he's broke, he's trying to pay the rent. He's <laughs> like. Nobody respects him. Spider-Man. But yeah, so it's like there's another set, and then they eventually made Spider-Man black. But yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think there's just a sense in like black people are going to the movie theaters to watch this guy and feel like he's on my team. And then he does movies where he actually casts like Jim Kelly in it as a hero mm-hmm. at a time where like we weren't being cast as the heroes in other in our movies that we weren't creating. So we could feel that Bruce Lee was friends with black people even though we did not know. And it turns out he was friend. He had black friends. Mm-hmm. And wasn't he actually promoting? Kung Fu, like among, among yeah. you know, in, 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 in like various communities, like one not the, just the Chinese communities. One of the things he got in trouble with in San Francisco when he moved here is that he wanted to teach martial arts to people outside of the Chinese community, yeah. which at that point was not a thing. I was not allowed. And, and he was, yeah, it was not, you're supposed to, this is our knowledge for us. And he was very much like, I think Bruce always felt like a, a stranger in a strange land no matter where he was. And so he just wanted to be aligned with good people. It didn't matter what your race was. And so he's like, I mean, even teaching it to other Asian groups was not allowed. I think coming to the barrier was perfect for him because it politicized him in a way that like, he certainly, I believe, would have become even more outwardly political. But even just teaching martial arts to people who aren't Chinese is a political act. Marrying Linda is a political act. And also making sure all of his movies being about the underdog and not the bully is a political act. Bruce Lee's first martial arts studio wasn't far from here in Oakland. He was known for accepting students from a variety of backgrounds, and there's an amazing photo in this exhibit of Bruce Lee, who is only five foot seven, and his most famous student, who is seven foot two, NBA star and civil rights activist Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. When I, I lived in Chicago, and I found a school that taught Wing Chun, which is Bruce Lee's first style, and I was so excited, so I studied it for years. Oh, is that what you studied? I studied that. For, ah, I, yeah, so I, I mean, I started out like a lot of a lot of black kids. You started taking like karate at the community center. <laughs> like, just, yeah. Maybe the teacher's a black belt. Maybe he's not. But you just start out like you with the get the gi and you do it, and then I eventually taekwondo. And then when my mom moved to Chicago, I found a Wing Chun school, and I felt like I have. I'm, I've, life has finally achieved what I needed to achieve. So yeah, yeah, so I knew that it's very funny to see this this style, which was a very obscure style when I was taking it, is now become mainstream because of its connection to Bruce Lee. Yeah, and got it, it. And Ip Man being like a hero, like they make movies about Ip Man is very funny to me because it was like, you know, he was just a, he was an obscure figure when I was growing up. And also the other thing that I learned from that movie, which I didn't know, is that there were so many factions. I mean, I knew mm-hmm. about the karate kung fu, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. battle, but I didn't know about all of the there was just a multiplication of different styles, different philosophies. Yeah, yeah. kung fu is like a catch-all term for Chinese martial arts. Yeah. And once you get into the Chinese martial arts, there are, I think, hundreds of styles. Mm-hmm. Like, and also subsets of styles. So, like, our, like he does the across-the-street style of this. I do the, you know, like, it's like, it becomes like the, Catholic, like the, like the Christian religion. Like, yeah. it's just like, it's like are you Methodist yeah. or are you yeah. Protestant yeah. or what are you? Are you Southern Baptist? <laughs> you know, like, are you Baptist or Southern? It's, a, it's very much like that. Like, yeah. it can get very sort of, like, 
in the non KKK way clannish, and so mm-hmm. I think that's and also it's about yeah. uh, by its very nature about I want to test my style against your style because I need to believe that my style is the best, which is what a lot of what Bruce Lee was doing when he was eighteen was like apparently fighting, having street fights that weren't really about like I hate you; it was about testing each other. Well, and also, I mean, that's the thing that I remember about when we were kids. Like so much of this was about learning how to be, Mm -hmm. right? Learning how to think, Mm -hmm. learning how to be in the world in addition to the fighting. And the fighting Mm -hmm. was, you know, a big part of it. Yeah. I mean, and a lot of the the appeal, I think, when you're a kid Mm -hmm. is when you see all of these people doing these fantastic things on TV. Sure. And it's so inspiring. But then you show up in your martial arts school and then you learn it's like, we're sitting and meditating? What is this? Yeah. <laughs> or like, wait, the, the, I mean, Bruce Lee says in a dragon, wait, I, the highest level is to not have to fight at all? Wait, but I, thought, <laughs> I thought the highest level was kicking everybody's butt. And, and I always point out that when I talk about Bruce Lee movies, in every movie, he would rather not fight. Yeah. Like in every movie, the thing, he's like the guy who's like, please don't make me fight. If you could just be cool, I wouldn't have to fight. I really don't want, there's like literally people like, could you just hurry up and fight? Cause we're losing over here. <laughs> like he's not, he's not like excited to fight. Like maybe like in Enter the Dragon, he's sort of, it's like a James Bond movie, but it's really about a guy who's like, he's, tr- he's also trying to avenge his sister's death. Like yeah. that's, the, that's the Bruce Lee thing. I can't just be James Bond. Mm-hmm. I have to also be avenging my sister's death. And if these people would all just admit that they were wrong, I would stop fighting, but they won't admit it. One of my favorite things about Enter the Dragon is when you, because at that point he was a huge star in China, mm-hmm. that you can see extras in the background smiling while he's fighting because they're like, I'm standing next to Bruce Lee. Like, it's really great. The guys who are supposedly his enemies are, like, standing in the background, like, smiling because it's like, I'm hanging out with Bruce Lee. <laughs> How did I get on this side? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is so cool. Look, he's beating up my friend. You know, like, yeah. So, and I, that's the thing I think that even though I have not practiced martial arts in years, mm. I have learned the fact of, like, how, like, conflict avoidance how to sort of stand up for yourself in a way that will sort of diminish the conflict instead of increase the conflict, mm-hmm. how to watch out for yourself and those around you so you're not entering into spaces where there might be conflict, and how to diffuse conflict is all stuff I learned from doing martial arts. So even though yeah. the physical abilities may not still be there, but that all came from going down the Bruce Lee path. And the thing I love about Shannon Lee is she's like, the kicks and punches are a part of it, but it's the philosophy that is why it endures. Yeah. Shannon Lee, Bruce's daughter, was only four years old when her father died. There are clips of interviews with her throughout this exhibition, reflecting on her father's life and legacy. She's written a book about her father's teachings and says he defined strength as vulnerability. There's some amazing stuff around here. No, there's a lot. So this I love. Okay, so here I am in front of this photo of Bruce Lee and his incredible library. So yeah. he has a huge, like a lot of books. He had a good Zoom background before that was a thing. <laughs> like he had the, I know. the bookcase loaded down with books. The shelfie. The shelfie, yeah. He, he was all about the shelfie before it was a thing. And so his bookcase looks like it's the bookcase of an academic, which I think is important. It's not the bookcase of a martial artist. You can be both. And he had, apparently had books on all different styles of fighting, including like fencing and lots of philosophy books. He read a lot. He was a big, I mean, his degree that he was going for at uh, UW was in philosophy. So yeah. he was a guy who was like, he was definitely like a searcher for knowledge and, an, and had an academic mind. It was about peak physical condition and peak mental condition. And if you look at like even how he ate and what how he trained, it's a lot of things that people later did and understood. Was he was doing things people weren't doing before. But yeah, he was clearly like an academic, and he wrote a lot. And yeah. And here we have one of his papers that he wrote on Descartes. It's so funny to see his handwriting because it is very 
like beautiful. <laughs> like, like yeah. it, it's old yeah. school, like cursive, like like a the way you would do it when you first learn cursive. It looks it almost looks like a font. But yeah, yeah and it's it's funny to think again, handwritten paper. There's no computer. He's not using a typewriter, so it's a literally a paper that he is writing, and you can see where he scratched out words and they were because he made mistakes. And again, for a guy who at that point probably had. He had big visions, but had no idea what he was going to achieve. And I also like this. It says he was combining European thinkers like Carl Jung and Rene Descartes with Asian sages like Chuan Tzu, the founder of Taoism, and uh, Krishnamurti. Doing things that now we, of course, you would look at the Western philosophers and the Eastern philosophers, but that was not yeah. uh, that was not a thing in the same way it is now. I'm really happy with this exhibit because for a, such a long time, I felt like when I would bring up Bruce Lee, people would be like, "See that that the karate guy." It wasn't karate, you know what I mean? Like there was just no sense of him as anything other than. And also, they'd be like, "Yeah, he did like a hundred movies. That wasn't all him." Like there was just a really people were not educated on him at all. People yeah. are still not at, as educated as I would like them to be. Sure. But we, things like this allow people to get more educated and really sort of put him in a space of like you don't maintain icon relevance for over fifty years and not have something that's worth studying. Bruce Lee came to this country at age 18 with only $100 in his pocket. There's a great photo of him in this exhibition. It might be my favorite. So here we have a kind of cocky teenager, super handsome. He's got these 50s era cars behind him, which are beautiful. Very defiant looking. And that's and he showed up apparently as an arrogant 18 year old who thought he was better than everybody. Oh. And he learned over time to how to be more humble and then how to actually be better than everybody. <laughs> like, oh, that's true. But not be a braggart about it. Oh, but it. he looks so, um, yeah, he looks so ferocious, you know, well, he that looks expression. Like, he like looks like an eight year old. In the brief 14 years he lived after this photo was taken, Bruce Lee broke through endless stereotypes. At the time, Hollywood was only casting white actors to play Asian characters and he became the first Asian action star in Hollywood. And he introduced the world to Chinese martial arts. He was remarkable and ingenious. Okay, so we're doing a show, like a lot of our show is really about an ingenuity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, where do you get it from? You. Me? <laughs> I got that. Where one gets it, not the royal, <laughs> not the royal you, me. <laughs> I think there's a couple things. I think a lot of it comes from seeing my mom's path. Like she was a person who was like, did not, wanted to be an academic, but at the time she was trying to be an academic, they did not recognize the field she was studying as an academic field, which is African-American literature. Mm -hmm. She was at Stanford, so she was like, all right, then I'm gonna leave, I'm not gonna go the way you want me to go. I'm not gonna get a degree I don't want, or a PhD I don't want. I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go do my own thing. So she just went on and like started her own publishing company and self-published books of African-American quotations and sort of created her own path. Took steps not knowing there was ground in front of her. So I saw that. And I saw my dad, who was sort of like went the corporate direction, but was like, I'm going to go the corporate route, but I'm going to be smarter than you. I always think of him as being like, it's funny, this, this, uh, this analogy doesn't work the way it used to. The Will Smith, I'm just going to be better than you. Like, mm-hmm. you know, this, mm-hmm. Will Smith, well, good, but you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm going to be better than you. Yeah. So you're going to have to accept me. So I think I, I have sort of pieces of that. Like, I'm just I'm going to work in this field, but I'm going to do it the way I want to do it. Yeah. And I was I, raised that way. That was my mom's oh, yeah. mantra. Yeah. yeah. And then I think about, as an only child, I think it's really, I, a lot of only children don't like being only children. I really enjoyed the ability to pursue my own strains of thought and not have them interrupted in ways that later I got in life. And I was like, people, too many people are talking. <laughs> it's like, I need to be, I need, I really, my wife always says, I need my like alone time to like ruminate and marinate on things. And so I think having the ability as an only child to just sort of let your thoughts go wherever they want to go, you come up with things that you probably wouldn't come up with if you were sort of always in conversation with people. So I think that's a big part of it. 
And then I think having, like I went to the University of Pennsylvania for college. After a year, I was like, I think I made a bad choice. I don't think I want to be a guy who has a degree from the University of Pennsylvania because I don't think there's anything here that they're going to teach me that I think I need or want. Yeah. And so dropping out of college, and my dad was not happy, out of a good school, an Ivy League school, Ivy League school. and saying, I'm going to go back to Very Chicago fancy. and figure it out. And having a mom who's like, I signed you up for classes at Second City. You've always wanted to be on Saturday Night Live. Go take classes. Oh, I didn't City. know you went. You were at Second City. I did, yeah, I, I always say this. I paid to be at Second City. I never got paid to be at Second City, but <laughs> that was the thing that took me down. That gave me the courage and sort of skills to pursue stand-up comedy. So for me, and my mom said this when I dropped out of Penn. She was like, my dad was upset. My mom was like, what are you gonna do? Or do you like basically like asked me like, how do you feel? And she and she reminds me this day. I said, I don't know. Things always seem to work out for me. <laughs> Which was an incredibly bold statement at the time, but she's always reminding me of that. That even when things get hard, like you remember, you always said things work out for you. Now, the thing I understand now is like things work out for me if I work for things to work out. Yeah. Like it's not about sit. So going to Second City, getting getting a day job, so I'm not sleeping with my mom's. Like you got to get a job, getting a job. Not on the sofa. Yes, not on the sofa. Starting to do stand-up comedy, putting myself in positions with people where I'm always challenged by my ideas, moving to the Bay Area and saying, I'm, not, I'm here to be a comedian, but I'm also going to hang out with all these different types of people that I never would have met before. Mm-hmm. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let my ideas be challenged. I'm going to, like, really allowing myself, coming to the Bay Area and learning the value of, what I, of shutting up and listening to people. So, like, when people say something that challenges you, you don't always respond. You're like, huh. Mm-hmm. The Bay Area was really a key part of, like, me sort of defining who I am and how I'd be in the world. And when I look at my career, those are the pieces that made me go, oh, that's how I ended up being a comedian. And you don't need to like, respond. Because yeah. I, re- I remember that, that thing that um, Toni Morrison says. They're always going to tell you that your, your head's yeah. too big or yeah, you're yeah, like, yeah, whatever the yeah, thing yeah, is, right? Yeah, yeah. And then you're going to have to argue with them and defend yourself. Just mm-hmm. don't bother. Yeah, yeah. Don't bother. Just, yeah. Do I need to be in community with you or can I just keep it moving? And so, and so a lot of times I think it's just about, like, move at your own pace but always be moving. Like, don't get, I think that the, the other thing I think I learned from the Bay Area of being a stand-up comedian who then started his own solo show is like, don't bullshit yourself either. Like, really look at yourself and go, where was I last year? Where am I this year? Have I made progress or am I, have I stalled out? The reason why I moved to the Bay Area from Chicago is because my third year of doing stand-up comedy, I was like, I think I repeated a year. Yeah. I don't think I got better. I'm not, I'm not, my career hasn't moved along. Right. So I think I need to make a change if I'm really doing this thing. So I think the big thing is like, I think it's more important to be your own, your own best critic more than it is to be your own best cheerleader. Yeah. I think it's important, and I don't mean harshest critic, but your own really like, you're, you're not really doing the thing you think you're doing right now. So, you're treading water. Yeah, you're, 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 cause there's, and there's a lot of people, especially in the arts, who are just like sort of lying to themselves about what they're accomplishing or why they aren't getting what they're getting. And so for me, it's like being honest with, even right now, being honest with myself and my progress yeah, I'm, I'm probably two in my head, but I think if I wasn't in my head this much, I wouldn't be where I was right now. Thank you, Kamau Bell. Showtime, HBO, CNN, wherever you are on TV, we're all lucky that you're too much in your head. And I want to say thanks to the Chinese Historical Society in San Francisco for opening their doors to us in Chinatown. I'm Katerina Fake of YesVC, and this is Ingenious. You can also find me on LinkedIn, And we've created an ingenious newsletter on Substack with bonus content and reading around each episode. Both links are in our show bio and description of this episode. See you again soon.